Welcome to Wireless Future. This is episode 18. Uh, I'm Eric Larsson and I'm here as always with my colleague Emil Björnsson. Hello Emil, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, today we are delighted to have as guest Dr. Magnus Frodig from Ericsson. Uh, Magnus is a vice president and head of Ericsson Research. Uh, heading up an organization of more than 700 staff researchers. Uh, he has a doctorate from KTH, Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, and he has been in the wireless uh, field for more than 25 years and is also an adjunct professor at KTH in Stockholm. Magnus, we are delighted to have you with us uh, on the show. Thank you very much for joining. Yes, and thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, to the podcast here. That's great. Um, So the plan is that uh, Emil and I will run a conversation with you and uh, we'll ask you questions and hopefully not give you too a hard time along the way. (laughs) And uh, as a starting point, um, we are going to take the white paper that Ericsson published on 6G, Ever-Present Intelligent Communication, a Research Outlook Towards 6G. Um, so my first uh, question is, what are the driving forces behind 6G? And specifically, what are the emerging applications that we will see that necessitates 6G? Uh, I mean, do we need, air quotes, 6G? And if so, for what? Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it is really still in, in research phase, this, of course. And trying to beforehand to pinpoint sort of the killer application for something has always been difficult. Um, And uh, so what we have been doing is a little bit looking now at the launch of 5G and and what we believe will be developed and and tried and and start to get momentum in 5G. And then trying to think about how that could scale then in 2030 time frame and, and 6G will kick in and, and really make this uh, cost-effective uh, services available for all all uh, sort of consumers and industries. So that's our starting point. And then if you do that, I think it's, it's interesting to think about how the uh, sort of the social media, entertainment, everything today, which is very much sort of screen-based, how that will evolve. Mm. And here we see and believe that we will have very, very good device development. So we, we will all have the possibilities to use AR glasses within a few mm. years. And uh, when you then can be sort of a little bit moving in between the, the physical world and the digital world and have all of this at the same time, Mm. I think this Internet of Senses is something mm. that that would really uh, be one, one of the key applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really exciting with Internet of sensing, Senses and also with uh, emerging AR and VR applications, right? Which presumably would uh, impose entirely new requirements also on the connectivity in terms of, well, latency requirements for one thing. I mean, if you're sitting with VR or glasses, then you probably need like a millisecond round trip guaranteed not to get motion sick, right? And not to mention the data rates, of course. Um, so 
who is going to pay for this? I mean, who will finance the development? Will it be the, the, the I mean, in the end, the customers will pay, right? But during the development, will it be the, 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 the operators or the, or, the, or the consumer somehow or someone else? Or do we know that? Yeah, the, the good thing is, of course, that we, we are sort of an established industry with large players and, and the companies now sort of that have developed 4G and selling 4G, we use that in order to be able to develop 5G. And now hopefully we will be able to to sell and deploy a lot of 5G infrastructure during the coming 10 years here. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we will continuously invest in, in, in the... Mm-hmm continuation of this technology mm. and uh, I mean now when we are rolling out 5G in the first phase uh, it is the consumers that are driving that investment by the operator because mm. they are using more and more data they want like to have more and more capacity the operators are seeing that they, they get into capacity limits so they need to invest in the network mm. And then you can, of course, do more 4G or you can switch over to 5G. And, and then it gets more sort of attractive to switch over to 5G to get all of that functionality and get to the latest, newest equipment. Mm. And by that, you can also have savings when it comes to energy consumption um, and um, how you maintain a, and operate mm. the networks, right? So we have this modernization going on, which sort of, makes you you need to buy new equipment and, and then of course you buy the latest then it would be very very interesting to see how the enterprise business would take off now on 5g is it mm-hmm. so that the, the second phase of 5g will be very much driven from industries enterprises society that would like mm-hmm. to have all of this functionality and then 6G then, that might be when we take it back to consumers, right? Everybody wants the robots and stuff, right? And, and uh, you, you really um, get into the consumer market again. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, I mean, if you look at other um, businesses than uh, consumers indeed, or, or the consumer market indeed has been driving, right? I mean, think of like... Um, uh, graphics cards for computers which have been driven to to a great extent by by gaming and now of course later on by by machine learning applications that uses the same sort of circuitry right but this is the interesting aspect so one thing that uh, comes to my mind is also sometimes i read that people claiming in the news that the first phase of 5G isn't really the 5G that we were looking for because 5G is mostly for enterprises, right? This is just some soft version that is not really the real thing. What is your your take on that? Is that a misunderstanding? 5G is both for consumers and for enterprises? Yeah. um, I, I, I think... Um, uh, <laughs> I definitely think that is the, the real thing, right? And, and, and as I said, it, it is for consumers now, firstly, because you, you get the better sort of performance. And, and looking at the countries that have been investing and, and, and made na- nationwide deployments like Korea or something, mm. then the, they have a huge uptake, right, uh, of the, the subscriptions. Uh, the amount of data that they are using and and uh, the the kind of experiences that that could be offered. Uh, 
but it's still sort of it's still a little bit in the smartphone era right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. It, it will take a little bit before we can take this step into the this uh, augmented reality glasses and, and new ways of interacting and everything and then it will of course continue to be very consumer driven although we see a lot of these industry use cases Hmm. So uh, uh, that's a good thing with this, the, the, this uh, dual use of the technology. I think that's really the fundament here to, to get the big um, uh, impact in society also on the sort of non-consumer side. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is a good point that even if uh, uh, we get, get new use cases, it doesn't mean that the old ones will not evolve and continue to be be important mm. so one of the things you are mentioning in the white paper as a goal for future development is something called limitless connectivity uh, what does that mean more precisely yeah this this could be a challenge from a pure sort of scientific point of view of course um, but what we really mean is that the the connectivity provided will be ahead of the needs uh, you, you will sort of have the con- connectivity that you would need and expect in different situations. And uh, there will be then limitations perhaps of what you can do, how the applications develop, what kind of compute you will have, etc. etc. But it should, re- should not really be this limitation by the, the data rate or the available capacity or something like that. That, that should be enough for what you could expect and need. And then we all know that there are, of course, limitations on, on how to provide that in, in extremely wide areas. But also there we are trying to to get sort of more data rate, more capacity to, to larger areas. And there is a lot of development to have an integration with the, the satellite industry to really get sort of full full coverage, right? And it's still a little bit questions around exactly how the devices would look like. If it's so that you can buy a standard phone and, and, and a smartphone and then pay a little bit extra to get the satellite subscription on top. Or, or if it needs to be a separate antenna or, or a special phone or something. I, we don't really know yet exactly how that could be done. Mm. So achieving some kind of global coverage with wireless, uh, is it that it's not economically feasible to build out cellular networks everywhere and therefore you need to fill in with Starlink and other technologies from the sky? Or is it that it's really not possible to provide global coverage from the the ground? Mm, yeah, I think overseas, I guess it's sort of yeah, overseas, that it could be yeah, a challenge. That's a good point. Uh, but um, if you're on the, on the land-based, um, I think I, I think we have a lot of technology and we see how the 2G networks are being built out to 90% plus something in population coverage. And, but the LTE networks are not yet as built out. So to, so, to just put LTE-based stations on all your GSM-based station sites that would provide a lot of value and a lot of data to these developing countries, right, where the coverage still is poor. Mm. So just using the technology we have. And and then what is limiting then typically is you get into these backhaul problems and energy 
provide the needed energy, etc. So you need solar cells, obviously, and so on. Uh, perhaps a satellite can offer a very interesting backhaul opportunity here. Perhaps that's the, the key application actually for, for satellite communication to provide affordable connectivity to really, really rural areas. Hmm. That's an interesting point with the satellite uh, connectivity. So uh, if we continue to talk about challenges, I mean, the white paper also talks about challenges uh, that 5G cannot meet, right? And we mentioned a few here. I think this uh, unlimited coverage is one and also support for emerging consumer applications like virtual reality, uh, especially, is another one. Uh, what other challenges are there or rather use cases that 5G was never able to support? I mean, to, to my understanding, 5G is excellent for mobile broadband. Uh, service, but it never really succeeded on uh, supporting ultra-reliable low-latency communications, for example, it, and it only partly succeeded on um, massive uh, MTC and, and massive access. Um, is that a correct understanding, and are there other challenges that, that you see that um, 5G uh, wasn't able to, to, to really meet? Yeah, I think it's a bit early to say exactly what 5G will be able to, to meet and not meet because we have just the first now commercial networks being rolled out. And mm. um, and uh, the, the current limitation, I think, for, for most uh, non-mobile non broadband type of applications are that, that we need uh, more sort of industry uh, devices. Mm. So, so, so we need more device capabilities and then I'm sure that we will be able to do, uh, I mean if LTE is reasonably getting down to 20 millisecond round trip times if you have a good setup everything, uh, perhaps 5G will do 5 milliseconds to start mm. with and then we will gradually optimize that and, and we have all the millimeter waves where we can go even lower in, in the round trip latencies over the air interface and then if you combine that with on-prem compute etc then, then I think we, we could we could reach this one, one millisecond mm -hmm. so so there is a lot of built-in possibilities to develop 5G and, and, and that's the we have really been thinking about that in the design that everything that one device needs should be confined into that antenna beam, so to say, and, and that device should not listen to anything else, right? That means that you can add another sort of version of 5G on top in the same, right? And that will not confuse mm. the already existing devices. And by that, there's a lot of sort of forward compatibility possibilities built in here. So I'm, I'm now we're starting up standardization here for something that will be called 5G Advanced, mm. which is sort of release 18, which we are able then to, to add a few things uh, that we will now see uh, that might be missing. Uh, but what I think we, perhaps something a little bit more fundamental that is not fully covered, where I would expect there would be gaps, that's in, in this robustness uh, uh, to really make it resilient against, against attacks, etc. So you can really provide these mission critical services that, that will be everything, you will be so dependent on these, right? 
so, so there I think on, the, on this trustworthiness, resiliency, there I think there are gaps that, that we need to address. Yeah, when you say resilience against attacks, do you mean like uh, jamming attacks on the physical layer or do you mean other types of attacks that the system could be subject to? Yeah, uh, I, I mean both, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Just to buy a jammer on the internet, and uh, that's sort of easy. And, and if you then have mm. sort of a, the, the, the traffic in the city, and, and the traffic in the crossing there controlled and, and you just turn on one of these jammers and, mm. and you, you can have a standstill of all traffic, right? That will not really be uh, acceptable. So, so there it's a lot of needs, I think. And then of course you need to be resilient to a more sort of classical attacks as well. And, and you need to have some sort of separation. You, you really need uh, to, to treat these systems as critical mm-hmm. and, and you need to have uh, well thought through backups or safety modes of the systems it, it, it has to be it, something needs to always be upright mm-hmm. even under some circumstances of attacks etc you really need to keep some basic service I think mm. otherwise too much will be at stake I think Right, that's such an important point, I think, with the resilience against uh, attacks. And one thing to remember here also is that equipment for jamming of wireless links and systems used to be military grade and cost, I mean, millions of dollars, right? If you back up to, I don't know, a couple of, or a few decades, say. Uh, But the same technology is available today off the shelf. I mean, you can buy a software-defined radio for $1,000, uh, over the internet and, and, and in, in principle start transmitting in any of the bands that are used for for commercial mobile radio or even for, for critical uh, infrastructure applications and um, obviously that's a significant threat to uh, society when we rely on these systems for, for, for critical tasks. Yeah, so... Uh- and we really would like to have then, uh, with with a multitude of advanced antenna capabilities, we would like to be able to identify jammers, be able to sort of work around them in order to protect the system. Right. And of course, I mean, jamming is just the simplest form of an attack, right? Where you, as an intentional jammer, transmits a noise-like signal in order to disrupt or block the communications of, of others. But there are also a lot more sophisticated attacks. Spoofing, for example, where you pretend that you are a legitimate base station and try to connect to, to users in the cell and uh, send them fake information or eavesdrop on them and so forth. So. Um, these are definitely great challenges. Uh, it's been for a long time in my view, as you probably know, and it's also extremely reassuring to hear you talking about uh, this uh, with us now. Yeah. Yes, I think it's interesting. And, and some of these things that we had on these four space stations, I think that has been addressed. But I think the, the requirements when it comes to privacy and, and protection of, of not only your sort of phone mm. number identity now when internet of senses type of applications this will be all your private life right that that right. needs to be protected and and 
Then I think the locality of data and, and, and having regulation around this, et cetera, is a huge area that we need to work on. Mm-hmm. That's the other side of it, right, with the privacy and who owns the data, where does the data sit and so forth. Um, but again, back to the threat of, of jamming and, and, and perhaps even spoofing that today electronics is so cheap and you could think of an adverse or hostile actor who would buy uh, swarms of drones and send them up in the air and have each drone transmit uh, doesn't have to be a very strong signal I mean but you could easily disrupt or, or shut down uh, the, the a complete I mean the wireless coverage over a whole city right so these are frightening prospects uh, indeed I believe and something that definitely will have to be addressed in future research and development um, great so um, Emil I think you want to talk about data rates <laughs> yes uh, and first just uh, remind about one of the i think the great thing that you were also pointing out that we are often so focused on that there is 5g and then there is 6g like there's mm-hmm. nothing happening through 10 years apart from research but uh, as you were also mentioning there are many releases in between and we shouldn't judge what 5e can and cannot do based on only the first generations and uh, i guess in order to to point that out more clearly to the public you also are introducing these names like uh, 5g advanced and maybe there will be a 5g advanced pro or something <laughs> like that later on uh, anyway what i wanted to to ask about was a bit this uh, with the data traffic that is growing so Eric's have this mobility report coming out uh, uh, once or twice per year talking about how the data traffic is growing and uh, if one looks back to sort of the research leading up towards 5G I remember well, maybe it was uh, 2013 or so both Qualcomm and Nokia were talking about that we think that the data traffic in the future will double every year so a 10 years that's a thousand times increase and and then now if you look in your report it's more like 45% increases and then when I try to break that down into different countries I get the impression at least that uh, if you look in developing countries they might have 60s 70 percent increase there uh, which is natural because they sort of come in with ld technology now as you were also mentioning and and then in developed countries it might be slightly less than 45 then to to get that average so do you see that we will continue having an exponential growth like this for the coming decades so are we seeing some kind of convergence where everyone uh, cannot stream more than uh, HD video quality all the time. So if once you reach that, you saturate. Mm. Yeah, it's. Um, I definitely think this will continue, and um, I expect it to accelerate. Um, first of all, all of this sort of mobile broadband type of services will be. You, we, we will go from this screen of today to 360 video audio etc and we will have holograms etc it takes enormous data rates hmm. so that's one development the other thing is is all these um, machines which we they a lot of the machines will be very capable right and they will carry ai capabilities so they they will be intelligent machines and and these machines can communicate then with other intelligent machines and and how much an AI to AI type of communication, how much data they can generate and consume. There's no no limitations on that, I think. So uh, I think we will see uh, 
the growth of, of yet another leg of usage here, which could be of equal size, I think. Mm. So, so it's more like that we have uh, uh, sort of natural fluctuations over time based on what kind of new devices have been showing up at a particular time. So now we might be waiting for this AR, XR kind of device to show up. Yeah, perhaps we are limiting it or, or approaching some limit mm. on how much you cons- can consume by a screen. Mm. Perhaps that is what you see there. And when we break that, it will take a new development then. Uh, I, I would assume. And then you could argue that we, now it's a lot of talk about the data, the user data plane, but I, I think the control plane of this system would be perhaps not, not the same amount of data, but that, that will increase in importance. So guarantee certain uh, behaviors, have the observ- observability, predictability, the robustness of everything, right? So mm. there is a lot of metadata around the data, I think, that will be of very large importance here going forward. Eric, did you have some further questions? Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to talk about technology solutions that we see coming, uh, let's say in 5G Advanced or 5G Advanced Plus or 6G <laughs> in any case uh, for the future, right? And uh, the obvious ones that I can think of right off the bat, obviously, are larger MIMO arrays, and higher carrier frequencies, right? I mean, millimeter wave is already there, but there's a lot of talking about terahertz and also about visible light. And um, what is your view on this, um, Magnus? What are the most important new technologies that we will see forthcoming in, say, the next um, 10 or even 20 years? Mm. Yeah, I, I think we haven't really yet understand the full potential or limitations of the millimeter wave equipment. So, so when we when we get that right, we will see uh, what that means. And, and these systems will provide a lot of capacity because they need to be denser, and there is uh, huge spectrum bands available. So, so these are extremely interesting. And then a question is, of course. Would that just scale then if you take that even higher in frequency? Uh, or will you be even more limited online of sight and, and these kind of things? Mm. So I'm very interested in, in, in your particular fields here around the distributed MIMO. So, so if, if these kind of solutions could actually mitigate a little bit all of these drawbacks that you are blocked from different uh, mm. directions etc and that you can get the signal through by this distributed MIMO schemes so I'm that's that's one of my favorite uh, technologies actually mm. yeah mine as well and I think also <laughs> Emil's right so yeah sure <laughs> uh, well well I mean it seems uh, clear that uh, terahertz millimeter wave or even terahertz is attractive because of the enormous bandwidths available there, right? At the same time, the problems that we see at millimeter wave will just be even further aggravated when we move up to terahertz. Uh, the problem with path loss, or more accurately, the effective area of, of, of an antenna element, uh, which translates into a loss in or, or, or reduction in path loss. 
um, and the problems with blocking, the fact they will have increasingly line of sight propagation, and also the loss in channel coherence, right, which um, increases the difficulties in, in, in tracking the channel and obtaining channel state information um, for, for, for beamforming, uh, particularly. Um, so, speaking of MIMO technology, where do you see that heading? I mean, you mentioned distributed MIMO, right? Where we think of arrays, uh, we distribute the antennas further apart, um, so the distance between every antenna is a lot larger than, say, a wavelength. I guess that's the definition of distributed MIMO. Or in some forms, that we build panels, and the panels might comprise well, 10 or 20 or 50 maybe antennas and they might be separated by half a wavelength or one wavelength or something and then we have multiple panels that in turn are separated by many meters or even tens or hundreds of meters apart. Um, so that's distributed MIMO. Um, there are also visions of building extremely large-scale arrays uh, covering, for example, uh, the face of a uh, high-rise <laughs> skyscraper outdoors and so forth. I think I had um, in uh, some uh, publication or talk an example where we looked at, okay, so if we are outdoors and uh, at uh, 2 gigahertz band, say, and uh, we had the opportunity to cover a skyscraper with antennas, then how many antennas could ever be useful, right? And uh, the answer um, that we concluded was that, well, the channel coherence, if there are lots of people there who want, say, virtual reality type of service, right, and they are standing still, then channel coherence might be, say, 200 milliseconds. The channel coherence bandwidth is 200 kilohertz. 200 times 200 is 40,000, which means that we have uh, room for 40,000 orthogonal pilots, which means that we can, in principle, multiplex 40,000 terminals simultaneously, which means that we need 40,000 antennas, right? And well, 40,000 antennas would actually fit on the on the facade of a skyscraper. <laughs> So now, this is a vision, not science fiction, uh, I think. Uh, it's still within the boundaries of what physics and information theory tells us is possible. But what is your view, Magnus? I mean, um, distributed MIME, I think we, we, we seem to be agree in agreement, all three, right, that it's coming and it's obviously a, a highly promising and useful technology. But these extreme large-scale arrays um, outdoors then, I think, would be the, like the main um, deployment case. Is that something that we see on the horizon, or is it, um, say, for industry, more of science fiction? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of a question of what kind of problems we are trying to solve. Um, and typically, when we are looking at systems and, and how they are getting more and more loaded and more and more users more and more and more traffic, most, most people tend to be indoor. Mm. Um, actually 80% or something is indoor. So people are typically indoor. Mm. Yeah, I can resonate with that, of course. On the other hand, you can think of applications where, you know, a big square in a big city where you have tens of thousands of people, right, who want to <laughs> simultaneously enjoy virtual reality or a sports stadium where <laughs> if you don't want to watch the soccer game directly you want to enjoy it through a device or something who knows what the next generation teenagers will want to do right and on top of that there is of course also 
um, might be applications with extreme reliability requirements that require the use of very large arrays because to, to achieve reliability then either we uh, need more bandwidth to get diversity or, or we need more antennas to get diversity or we need more time to get diversity right so um, but I definitely can see your reservations here too so what would be the applications where this really would be useful on the other hand once a technology is there then applications tend to um, emerge so uh, it might be a somewhat provocative example to talk about 40,000 antennas on a skyscraper, but uh, <laughs> anyways. Yeah, yes, yeah, let's see. But um, to, have a little, to have a much denser installation of, of more existing uh, type of handles and then try to connect them into some distributed uh, scheme uh, in order to avoid or so you can handle uh, all the interference and everything because mm -hmm. you get everything line of sight, right? So I think that's the really the good promise by these distributed MIMO schemes that you can build denser and denser and denser and still sort of get higher and higher capacity out of it, mm -hmm. which, is, which is a challenge really, right? Right, so that is the ma main pathway that you are seeing in terms of how MIMO technology will evolve, that will be building distributed MIMO systems consisting of, say, panels or, well, let's call them panels, that in themselves are smaller mid-sized antenna arrays, but they are then mutually interconnected and, and can operate coherently together uh, and, and um, achieve all the benefits that, that come with that. Uh, that's a vision that I think, uh, well, I share, of course, and I think Emil also <laughs> uh, shares it. Yeah, so, um, I just wrote this book that we talked <laughs> about a few episodes uh, before about cell-free massive MIMO, as we, we often call it in, in academia. So if I understand correctly, uh, when it comes to deploying many antennas at one location, uh, I used to think that it's sort of the the physical size that was limiting us in terms of that typical places on rooftops and in towers you cannot fit more antennas than a certain number because then it becomes too heavy or too big uh, but you also mean that you might not there is also an upper limit on the uh, what might be useful at a particular site because of the sort of coverage area that it could could serve yeah i think you with, I think it's attractive to go up in frequency to millimeter way because then these panels that we talk about will be small, right? And and, and, mm. and they will have a very attractive form factor and you can have many of them. And, but you need to get a little bit closer to the users because you are a little bit line of sight limited mm. in these. And that, I think, will drive a different type of deployments. Complementing then, we will still have the rooftop of course, and, and that will evolve. I'm not saying that we will keep mm. the same solutions we have today. That will evolve and it might be 10 times of what we have today, etc. Mm. But um, the real breakthrough, I think, is more on this. Closer to the users, into indoor environments, etc. And then you can't bring the big panels and the big output power that we have today. Then it, it needs to look different. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about like performance metrics that could be important in the future. I guess the, the classical ones are sort of like data rates per user and how it varies in the coverage area and the capacity per cell and the latency. And then maybe, I guess, if from 5G, the 
uh, IMT 2020 is also talking about energy efficiency. Uh, will this be the main performance metrics of importance going forward or do you think something new will appear and that ITU will put requirements on some new performance metric for something to be called a 6G technology? Yeah, um, question how how broadly ITU, ITUR will look at this if they will sort of stay in the frequency uh, receiver uh, air interface type of domains or if they would take a broader look at this or or if it will be uh, other industry bodies um, defining sort of the the broader picture because this is what, what you can see in front of you is really this integrated system where you have compute you have connectivity and you have that very very distributed and, and on top of that, you have a lot of AI, automation, data-driven capabilities. And then you have this uh, sort of robustness, trustworthiness in, in all of these different aspects. So there's a lot of requirements in this. How to integrate with the compute, how to provide so it's data-driven and fully automized, and how it can then can provide the, the, the needed level of, of trustworthiness. Mm. And we see this already when we are doing our research in, in the HexX project, for example, where, where we are looking at the pot potential requirements on the 6G. Then it's much broader than it used to be. So we, we are adding this next circle of, of requirements on top of the classical ones, mm. definitely. Mm. I would suppose that also new, new use cases will bring the need for entirely new performance indicators, right? Um, one... Uh, possible application of wireless networks is to for as we spoke earlier for machines to communicate and perhaps have edge devices that collaborate in training some machine learning model that resides in the cloud and most of the traffic would then be comprised of like model updates in the form of some gradient of a, of a, of a parameter vector or something and that's a whole different type of traffic as compared to bits that we are used to for, for video transmission or, or file downloads or anything else more or less. Um, is, that, is that a reasonable view to hold that there will be um, a need for like completely new types of performance metrics because of these new applications that we see emerge? Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I, I think... Uh... If a machines then are looking at a camera or a video stream, right, that would need a different, completely different uh, coding schemes in order to do the job. And, and if you want want to watch a football game, right, that's that's very very different. <laughs> and uh, so that's that will require new technology and new requirements and mm. and the the performance measures. Yes, they will be different. Mm. So, uh, going back to this thing with, with frequency band, but uh, thinking more broadly about it, uh, I think something that I sometimes hear when people say, oh, the, this phase one 5G isn't really 5G, because 5G was just supposed to be about millimeter wave, right? And, and we barely have that yet. Uh, so, uh, to what extent will millimeter be the the main thing in 5G when we look back 10 years from, from now? Uh, or is it like an an additional thing that we use in, in some special cases. And what does, does that potentially tell us about uh, 6G? Will 
are we moving up in frequency for real or are we just adding uh, extra frequencies and higher bands in certain specific scenarios? Now to start with, it's very clear that this is a 3.5 gigahertz band, which is really kicking in and, and giving operators uh, significantly more capacity compared to what they have because they can use the MIMO technology, they get sort of 100 megahertz band and they can put that on their existing site basically, right? Mm. So that's what's happening now and, and, and that's of course extremely good. The question is then if this we, we will start to build this more dedicated networks, indoor networks, um, s sort of city center, stadiums, uh, stations, airports, etc. on the millimeter wave. And if you start to build these and, and, and that gets the momentum, then of course that will increase mm. in, in, in importance. And, and if we have created all of these sites, uh, then... Uh, then of course it, it might be so that we are ready to go up even higher in frequency and we have the foundation then for taking the step to 6G and perhaps sort of add a little bit of these things that we didn't fully understood when we, when we started up this development of the millimeter waves. So it, that could be one development. Uh, but there are operators now building millimeter wave, right? So, mm. so it is starting and, and we have this street street macro cells that are using etc so yeah something is happening so i i guess the the 3.5 or even lower will will always be sort of important for the, the coverage but do you think the bulk of the traffic will go in millimeter wave bands uh, 10 years from now um, i think uh, this infrastructure thing is a slow process uh so in 10 years, I think we will be dominated by the 3.5 band. The, what, what operators now are installing, giving them, it gives them sort of five, 10 times the capacity they have today, basically, right? So they will, they will use that and then they will reform their lower bands uh, in order to get on a modern 5G equipment. So have 4G, 5G in some sort of combination. And then they will over time now complement millimeter wave but that will go slower. So, so I don't think that will dominate yet if we look at 2030. There's always a risky thing to talk about 2030, right? That's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but, um, mm. So when it comes to, to this millimeter wave deployments, I mean, we are mentioning indoor scenarios and, and street macro, and these are sort of the occasions where we we don't lack connectivity today. We might be using Wi-Fi in our home or offices. And uh, I've experienced uh, places like Luxembourg or Vancouver where you have outdoor Wi-Fi covering the streets. Uh, so to some extent, you, uh, uh, millimeter wave here is targeting use cases where we, we, we you become more closely a competitor towards, or towards Wi-Fi technology. So what are the main benefits of using 5G compared to say Wi-Fi. Mm. Yeah, you, you are perfectly right that there's an overlap here. Um, and Wi-Fi is, is, uh, has an enormously large ecosystem and, and the, there is uh, devices available, etc. So, so I think uh, Wi-Fi is here to stay. That, that's not something we're trying to replace in any way. So looking now at our offerings, if you were to look at the Ericsson 5G private networks that 
we have started now to package a little bit smaller networks that could be then deployed for some dedicated purpose uh, if you are able to work together with an operator or if you have a local license or something like that. Then I think we are starting to, to look at a little bit more wider area. It could be a port, it could be an airport, it could be a larger factory area or something like that, right? Um, and there I think we, we can have a system which where we can offer mobility, reliability, uh, predictiveness uh, in a way that is uh, really appreciated by these customers. And they have tried Wi-Fi there and, and they haven't had that great experience. So, so there I think we, we are able to offer something which, which is competitive. Then over time, it might be so that the millimeter wave equipment here are getting more and more sort of lower cost and, and they get an ecosystem around that. And, and perhaps you can buy your own 5G at home system. I don't know. I would like to have one, but uh, uh, that might be a few years out, right? And, and, but we have this integrated access backhaul, so, so you could put up a unit, right, which communicate with 5G as, as a backhaul link then, and, and then in that in your local area you can have the 5G access. And, and So I can imagine that that also will, will compete on the market. Yeah, and I've noticed myself whenever you use uh, Wi-Fi and you start to move around, even just walk out from your office or try to use the street Wi-Fi, it doesn't really work as soon as you start moving around. So, so I guess really the service quality will be much better with this type of technologies. Um, one thing that I also noticed was that uh, I think there was a lot of like uh, Ericsson 4G base stations that could be upgraded uh, to run 5G software or run it in parallel with 4G. Is this part of some kind of wider trend where uh, the connectivity becomes more software defined, uh, where we might see maybe even in mobile phones that we will get a software upgrade that allows us to support the next release or, or uh, will it still be that uh, the hardware will dictate what kind of 5G or 6G that you can utilize mm, yeah I think I think this definitely is something that we were able to introduce now and uh, uh, it's, it's even more advanced than that, that you can use the same hardware, you can use the same spectrum at the same time, right? And you can on a millisecond level decide if this time slot is for a 4G or for a 5G user, right? And you can mix all of that. And, and that gives, of course, very, very nice upgrade possibilities for operators. You don't need to do this sort of clean the spectrum band in order to shift technology. You can do that gradually as your customers are upgrading the devices, you can sort of gradually shift over to the new technology so that's extremely interesting and uh, i would assume that that's a requirement that will be in all updates going forward that you can do this that that would be my my expectation so to what extent do you actually get better service and to what extent do you just get a 5g logo in the corner of your your screen when you're sort of <laughs> switching i mean if it's the same hardware is it the software that just makes the difference yeah i guess what 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 we have been able to do now 
uh, with our equipment is that we have been able to use the same sort of uh, digital unit, uh, the sort of baseband processing uh, capabilities, etc. And that has been flexible enough in order then to, to use it for 4G or 5G in this way. So we can have this common scheduler that, that could sort of directly then decide on, on what systems to be transmitted. And if you if you get the new system going right uh, and and your phone is capable of it, then you will get the advantages of the new system, right? Mm. But the, the 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 hardware that you have already in the base stations, that's of course still the previous generation capacity when it comes to amount of users or the maximum data rate it can handle, etc. So you will need to upgrade that, obviously but you don't need to do it all at once. You can turn it on and you can get sort of the 5G logo on the phone and then the first users buying the 5G phones can experience it. And then you get the market going, you get customers that would like to do have more data, they would like to sort of pay for these subscriptions and then you can gradually upgrade. So it's, it's a more attractive way of introducing a new system basically. But of course, if you want if you want gigabits and a capacity, you need to have the corresponding horsepower on the base station side as well, obviously. Mm. Eric, do you want to take the next question? Absolutely. Uh, so returning to the white paper, um, it talks about network compute fabric and uh, what is that really? I mean, is, is, is that uh, a way of saying centralized or cloud run or is it something else? Or is it a way of saying, well, distributed MIMO, right? Where you have panels that are interconnected and uh, operate together and constitute some sort of computing fabric or uh, what does this term really mean? Network compute fabric? Yeah, uh, I think you can, you, you, you can, there will be a lot of compute needed, right? And in order to have the low latencies, the applications needs to run closer to the devices, right? So, so there is a definitely a trend from central clouds to more distributed cloud, and, and you will have more edge capabilities, so to say. So the compute is moving out. And, and then you would, of course, have the radio network as such and all the baseband processing could use this compute obviously so, so then the, the network will itself use it mm. but more importantly i think is that the applications will be running out there further out and when we talk about the network compute fabric is really more from this application point of view so if you have a you want to do an AR experience, something, uh, and you don't have a graphical card in, in the glasses, right? So you need to have that then on the network side, but you need to just render the picture out what you should see on these glasses, mm -hmm. right? Then then you realize that there is a, a huge sort of delay requirements there and a lot of data, a lot of capacity in, that needs to be provided. So when you start to see that, that you have these compute capabilities, different dedicated hardware, CPUs, GPUs, or whatever, right, uh, out there. And then you have this connectivity, and then you have uh, data available somewhere. You have storage available somewhere. It's almost like that you would like to jointly optimize this and, and view this as in one operating system where you can jointly then optimize the use of your compute 
your storage, the location of the data and your connectivity that you have available in order to change this situation, right? Mm. And, and that's really where we talk about this uh, network compute fabric. So, so that's really the vision if you stretch it to the extreme. But before that, you will see the hyperscalers coming with edge compute and you will see how the communication, the, the, the mobile broadband systems and the hyperscalers are meeting and you, see, you will see sort of a richer and richer environment at the edge where you can sort of run applications taking advantage of all of the low latency capabilities mm -hmm. that we provide. Mm -hmm. Mm. So we see sort of like a merge between a, a supercomputer and, and, and wireless network uh, infrastructure there. I mean, where edge nodes and, and even antenna panels might have the capability to support uh, devices with computation tasks, as you mentioned. I mean, you might be sitting with VR glasses that don't have an advanced enough graphics card and then they ask for help. Um, from the network and the actual computation would go in the, on, in the network but not necessarily in the cloud somewhere but rather in the actual antenna panel or at least in the in, in, in the wireless base station or, or that distributed MIMO system that's serving it right um, that's a that, that's a fascinating prospect I think um, so returning to um, the uh, theme of the conversation that we where we started with 6g uh, it seems increasingly so to me that 6G might not be necessarily a clean break with everything else that existed and, 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 and a new design from a clean sheet, but rather something that evolves from 5G, right? I mean, you spoke earlier about 5G and 5G plus and 5G plus advanced and so on. <laughs> uh, where is the timeline for this? I mean, when will 5G have evolved into something that we can with a clean conscious call and sell as? 6G. Yeah, yeah. That this is uh, this is very very open. Exactly how how what what will be the step here, um, and that of course depends on how much the 5G evolves and 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 when we get to this. That now it's now it's now we shouldn't call this an evolution anymore. Now it's really something different and and and, and so on. And the industry now is, is gearing up to this uh, and we are sort of expecting this to be the 10-year cycle. So uh, in 2030 something should be ready which should be called 6G. And if you count backwards you, you realize that standardization of that needs to perhaps start 2025 or something. And hopefully then the ITU process goes on in parallel and, and we are able to set reasonable requirements and they will get some new interesting spectrum and, and then we will do it all over again, so to say, just every 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, will it then be different? Uh, all good ideas that we have on the 6G research, which could be implemented on 5G will be, I think that then, then they will, 5G will just absorb them, right? And say, yeah, this is possible to do with 5G, let's do it. And, and there will be a market for that. And then if this, what remains to be 6G then gets more and smaller <laughs> because everything is sort of pushed to 5G, then the step will be small, right? 
but if it's so that that we see that this uh, you want to have it data driven in a different way mm-hmm. you you want instead of having a lot of domain knowledge being implemented uh, in the product design it will be a set of learned models that is out there right that might might be such a fundamental shift in how you think about how building the hardware and software here that you need to do a little bit from an implementation point of view mm-hmm. you need to do it differently so it, it might be that that really makes it 60 mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that's interesting so i mean there's the standards and the way the standards evolves on one hand right and there is the evolution say of the implementation as a, as a totally different and, and parallel thing and i guess well like folks like emil and uh, myself in in academia like to think about visions right and 6g in terms of well if we were to like redesign a, a wireless system from a clean sheet and what would it look like and i mean that sort of mentality whereas in in industry it's rather that well there's a lot of legacy right uh, invested and there's a lot of technology which has been extremely refined already and then the mindset might be more of like how do we continue to refine and then it in a way becomes like more of a marketing question i mean when does 5g become 6g right i don't know emily if you agree with this view but <laughs> uh it's kind of how i like to uh think about it yeah i i think we we often like in academia talk about revolutions and then revolutions are happening but they don't happen from one year to the next one they, there is a continuous evolution and then you look back and see oh this was actually a revolution <laughs> but I, I think this timeline that you were mentioning also it fits very well I guess we have uh, students at various undergraduate or graduate level that are listening to this podcast and if the standardization uh, would start now in a in four years from now they have plenty of time to to study up on the topic and get involved uh, uh, and uh, both at Ericsson or at other players to, to play a role in actually designing the, the new technology uh, so what do you think would be important for students to learn in order to sort of take a relevant part in the development to be uh, employable at Ericsson, for example, to uh, to do research in this field. Is it the same as before, or is it changing? I, I think there will be a lot of opportunities, and uh, Ericsson and others will need a lot of new competence. So, so we we are, are of course very very interested in having a, a I mean, a dialogue with with students and. Uh, I'm sure that we'll be able to offer a lot of career possibilities, right? So what will then be needed in, in order to to do that? And, and I think the, the field that the knowledge that we need is broadening. If it was a little bit more before, more focused on this communication theory, uh, classical electrical engineering type of competences, it's broader now. It, it is more system thinking it is more ai of course but that's just something we we will need all over right so so that's not unique for us but the trustworthiness uh, the security thinking on on that yeah but also how these technologies are used in different verticals so this there is i i think uh, more system 
thinking more end-to-end -end understanding and then of course to have the basic knowledges in the communication field is of course mm -hmm. yeah, also key right but I don't think you should feel like you just need to have this exact profile or something. I think I think many different profiles will will fit actually in the, in the needs that we have going forward. So, what do you think we should tell our students to sort of convince them that the telecom industry isn't uh, something that is a done deal? Oh, everyone have a device now; it, it's over. There is more future development in self-driving cars or uh, maybe some other space travel uh, that they should invest their time in, in learning <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, I, I think the, the the communication technology or the networks here they will enable all of these other things to happen right nothing mm -hmm. of all of this vision can happen unless they are connected and, and you, you can monitor and, and control them in a reliable way so um, being part of the, the telecom uh, Net system, the industry uh, in a broad sense. I, I think you will be part of shaping the future and how we mm -hmm. live. And, and mm -hmm. there is a lot of contributions to to society here. I think that is to me it's extremely motivating, and it is also one of the key technologies for the sustainability uh, and to reduce the climate emissions, the CO two emissions here, etc. So. There are so many things that these technologies can mm. enable. Then it's important to have all, all the good forces here, of course, to make sure that these, these technologies are used for good. We, we, we see, of course, examples where, where, where that's not the case, right? So uh, it is really, we need all, everyone here joining this and, and contribute. And, and um, I think the technology is, is still an answer on a lot of our different problems mm. that, that we need to address mm. Mm. so uh, to me it's extremely motivating to be part of this journey and, and i think we have seen enormous development but we have equally equally much ahead of us i think yeah i mean if wireless was only about transferring uh, things to a mobile phone now we are digitalizing the entire society so uh, it will be sort of a, a important component in every digital type of service that we'll have in the future so Eric yeah, did you have is... any more to say no I just <laughs> wanted to reinforce the point because it's so important right that communications is a fundamental enabler for almost anything else in the in in in, in the modern society and it's uh Reassuring to hear you also, Magnus, saying this and to grad students, because I know that we have a lot of grad students listening to the show. Uh, there are great opportunities out here uh, and great opportunities not only for, um, let's say, hardcore <laughs> research and development in, in, in communication technology, right, but also to have an impact on, on society. Um, well, um, I think we are approaching uh, the close-up here. Uh, I have a final um, uh, discussion point where I would like to have your view, uh, Magnus. And it's about the telecoms industry as such. Even when I was, say, <laughs> younger or grew up in the field, then there were lots of other actors, right? I mean, we had Motorola, we had Alcatel-Lucent, we had Nortel and so forth. Now there are only... Uh, um, 
a few, let's say, <laughs> remaining. Um, and at the same time, we also see this uh, trend with open RAN and uh, perhaps the, the, the potential for new smaller vendors to, to, to enter again. Uh, what are your reflections on this? Yeah, we, we are seeing this in in many or of the this ICT technology industry, right? That there is uh, uh, huge companies taking a more and more dominant position, and uh, if you focus down in the in the infrastructure for mobile networks uh, industry, then there is a this is an extremely complex uh, mm. thing here, right? And it takes a lot of development. We are spending 40 billion crowns per year on investing in our R&D for this. And then, of course, the, you get scale advantages by that, and then mm. you can invest mm. even more. And that drives this concentration, which, which is sort of natural i think um well i, I yeah it might it might be natural and it, it's also seen in many other fields right i mean take the the um, um, airplane industry for example there is almost only boeing and airbus uh, producing passenger jets uh and and, and uh, i'm sure you can find many other examples you can also find examples to the contrary i think the the, the car industry uh, is a good example where we have a wide diversity of different brands although they are in many cases owned by the same conglomerates <laughs> or, or um, uh, right um, but the, the real question here i think was whether open run and uh, that movement has a chance or or the potential to make a break with what's going on do you think that we will see smaller vendors obviously i mean this is like asking do you think we will see new competitors right but uh, do you have a view on or of course it's always as i always say it's hard to predict the future but um do you have any final reflections on how you think that this open run movement potentially could impact the way that the industry is structured and and organized yeah, I, I think it's it, it, it could it, it could have a big impact and, and we are as Ericsson we, we are very active in the to drive the the, the Oron standardization work right and it could have impacts of course that you could mix and match a little bit uh, to buy one part of the system. From one vendor and another part from another vendor. Uh, today we have the radio network and the core network type of split, right? But it could be perhaps one or two more of these interfaces uh, that that could be. Yeah, but th- there is a lot of innovation going on still, as you know, between the the antenna system and the and the radio and the baseband, right? That's not that is something that still evolves and mm. and. If you standardize that, you will have some basic functionality, but we and others will, of course, provide additional functionality on top of these interfaces that could provide advantages. Then I think if you look at how the, this network platform interacts with applications, I think this 
that part of the Oran could make it more rich in how you could have uh, APIs and, and data out of the networks into mm, the mm. application field in, 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 in a, in a in very interesting way, I think. So, so there, there are definitely opportunities to get it more richer. Uh, then, of course, if you want to then to buy sort of a scheduler from a different vendors and, 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 and so on, that, then I guess we, Ericsson, can't take an end-to-end -end responsibility anymore, right? Uh, because that, that will be hard. And uh, then, of course, we, we can take an integrated role. But then we have a prepackaged, already tested product ourselves. Mm. where we take full responsibility for or you then mix and mat max and match and then you need an integrator and still who do you call when it doesn't work yeah when it doesn't work yeah that's that's an important point indeed and also brings us back to what we spoke about earlier right with trustworthiness and so forth and building systems that really work guaranteed all the time um very good. I think with that we are approaching the close-up here. So thank you very much, Magnus, for joining us on the show today. Uh, this has been a fun and educational conversation. I learned a lot. Uh, thanks, Emil. I'm not sure, Emil, if you want to say something about the summer break that we plan for the podcast. Yeah, so this is um, episode number 18 <clears throat> and also the last one for this first season, I would say, uh, of our podcast. So we will take a summer break now and be back after the summer with a second uh, season. So don't be afraid, we will be back. So thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, listeners, as always, don't forget to like and subscribe us on YouTube. And see you again in the fall. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>